You know, last week you probably saying to yourself, wow, you know, I, I came here for the Hong Kong cinema and instead they gave me this obscure cult filmmaker that I've, I've never heard of. Uh, I, I hope this podcast reverses course and does something different. And to you, dear listener, we say, absolutely fucking not. We're, we're doing we're doing something worse. So what if we told you we're, we've pivoted from Stuart Paul to his producer brother, Stephen Paul? And uh, things have gotten very bad. So joining me this week, uh, he is he's an Eminon in the streets and a Simon Conjurer in the in the sheets. Jack Easton. Steve, I think uh, we really got to hand it to ourselves uh, with this episode. We have actually found rock bottom. We did it. We have. It's uh, it's it's incredible, honestly, like Stuart Paul goofball that he is. There's there's something there. There's some fun to be had. Stephen Paul is just shockingly, shockingly bad in, in ways that I could have never conceived of. And this is coming from someone who like as, as an optimism vaccine side project, we've done like a whole thing, like trying to find the worst movie streaming on Amazon, like things like that. And this is just this, this guy's whole filmography is a, a masterclass in things that I don't want to watch. Um, you know, I, but I, I, I could be wrong. Maybe there's some people out there that are big, Stephen Paul fans. So, uh, you know, like, like Jake, maybe Jake, you're here. What do you think Stephen Paul? Well, you know, it's amazing, Steve. Uh, thank you for having me. I, I think we have collectively found the worst films in the careers of Jerry Lewis, Madeline Kahn, Marty Feldman, Samuel Fuller, Pat Morita, Orson Welles, and Elliot Gould. Mm-hmm. How's that for an accomplishment? <laughs> it's pretty impressive. Like, when you look at the films that he's he's produced and Michelle Pfeiffer, sorry. Oh yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer too. Yeah, you, you look at all these people. I mean, these are name actors that he's working with, like real real people, people that you respect, people that you love. Elliot fucking Gould, you love Elliot Gould, man. Think about that. Think about that. I I do. Yeah. Think about just just the the wonderful radiant presence of Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, th- think about got all these people. Jerry Lewis, literally like the funniest motherfucker alive when he was alive. And and this is and and also keep in mind, Jerry Lewis, he made a film before his collaboration with Stephen Paul, uh, his, his Nazi clown movie. And somehow the Nazi clown movie is the one that he wanted to bury instead of the movie that he made with Stephen Paul. And I can assure you, there's no way. Jerry Lewis's Nazi clown movie is worse than what we watch. So that's the level that we're at here. You do not, you, you don't know the depths that you're going to. And you might be one of these people that's like, <laughs> I love bad movies. <laughs> no, no, no. Shut the fuck up. You, this is not something, this is not a road you want to travel down. Okay. I, I promise you, we've done the work so you don't have to. Yeah, no, this is a, this is a cautionary tale episode. Yeah. And, and, and not even like in a, oh, look, he, Icarus flew too close to the sun kind of a way though. This is not, and it's not the fun because Stuart Paul, Stephen Paul's brother, he's got that, that Neil Breen aspect to him or, you know, the Tommy Wiseau. It's that, that auteur, the misguided, like completely self-absorbed auteur who has a very distinct vision, which he executes, but the way that he executes it 
is like antithetical to everything that your brain has been trained to know is like quality cinema. So it, it creates this like weird, compelling, sometimes funny experience. This is not that at all. I, I, I assure you. Um, and, and Myros, I know we talked a little bit about Stephen and Stuart Paul, uh, you know, collectively as a family last week, particularly Stephen Paul's uh, lineage, how, how he got to, uh, you know, where, where he is today, I guess. And, and we kind of had the theory that it may have involved his rich parents uh, or step parents because of this Burl Ives connection. Now, it's hard to Google Stephen and Stuart Paul's past because when you Google Stephen Paul, all you get is 10,000 articles of him defending casting Scarlett Johansson in Ghost in the Shell because that was his call. So, you know, it's it's hard to get any background info on him. But what have we discovered since the last episode about this Burl Ives parental connection? Okay, so... So Twitter was honest a bit and saying that this story might be somewhat apocryphal. I mean, it's important to keep in mind, uh, contrary to popular belief, that that optimism vaccine is not journalism. Uh, we didn't, Says you. <laughs> we didn't do the deep dive and uncover all this stuff. It, it is sort of a, an internet finding that, that we were going off of there. But I looked into it further because uh, we had a Twitter uh, follower who, who was like, I don't know. They had uh, Dorothy Custer Ives uh, obituary, which did not mention any any Pauls. But I, I swear, I, I think maybe it's not true, but I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure because Dorothy Custer Ives is, in fact, named Dorothy Custer Paul, and they both died I mean, I, I couldn't give you the exact date of death for Dor- Dorothy Coster Paul, assuming she is, in fact, a different human than the Dorothy Coster Paul uh, who married Burl Ives. Uh, but they both, both must have died within, like, the exact same year. And if you look at, like, end-of-life photos of Dorothy Coster Paul, mother of Stuart and Stephen Paul, and Burl Ives' widow uh, in her obituary... And you told me they were the same person? I'd be like, yeah, sure. Yeah, that, that checks out. They look very similar. They have the exact same name. They seemingly died at almost identical times. So they may very well be different people. Uh, I can't with 100% veracity say that. Uh, it's an odd coincidence if that is the case. But the biggest piece of evidence I think I stumbled on was there It was a, a really weird blog post where someone was like interviewing John Voigt when he was on about uh, celebrating the life of Dorothy Coster Paul it, while promoting some fucking piece of shit TV movie he was doing, probably produced by Stephen Paul. Uh, and it was it was bizarre. It was just like someone's blog and, and there were like these weird like showcases filled with like set pieces like uh, props from uh, the Stephen Paul movies, I believe. But uh, what he was talking about was having cast uh their sister bonnie paul in a production uh stage play he was running in i think it was like 1982 or something of that nature uh and he was talking about visiting with his family and it did seem as if their father uh, again i could look this up but uh 
we'll just call him the father uh wealthy industrialist stephen paul and Stuart paul's father uh hank maybe i think it might be hank uh he seemed, sounds good he seemed to be in the picture like he was married it was like this was an intact familial unit seemed to be how voight was describing it which would be the only piece of, of firm contradictory evidence to the Burl Ives thing, because that would be a period in time when uh, Burl Ives would be married to Dorothy Custer Ives uh, until 1995 when he died. Um, other than that, again, that that's the best I've got. I think maybe Burl Ives is not related to them, but I wouldn't rule it out either. Mm-hmm. So we might be back to money laundering. That's, that's the long and short of it. That money laundering, yeah. Uh, Stephen Paul, if you're listening, who's your mom? Know. <laughs> we know who his mom is <laughs> and we know who his dad is we just don't know who his mom was married to between like the years of 1970 and 1995 yeah yeah we we even know that his 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 dad couldn't keep it up with his mom yeah I mean, oh christ this is actually this this whole story is a it's a great way to introduce the first movie that we're going to talk about because um Stephen paul and and part of the place where this like dorothy coster ives paul Thing comes from is there is an article from the New Yorker in the 1970s uh, about Stephen Paul. He was uh, quite the Wunderkind. Uh, he <laughs> was a celebrated teen playwright in in New York City, and that's kind of how he found his way into Hollywood at a young age. And he was allowed to direct this Hollywood movie with real ass people in it uh, and a very young Michelle Pfeiffer called Falling in Love Again. And this is a legitimate studio film. Uh, It's got people in it. Uh, It is now now part of the reason he was allowed to make it is because it was self-produced and self-funded. So he took three and a half million dollars of family money uh, which I don't know what that is in 2020 money, but that was quite a bit. And for some fucking reason, decided to make Falling in Love Again in uh, 1980, n- 1980, right? Just 1980. And the reason this is odd is you got to remember Stephen Paul, he probably wrote this screenplay when he was like, I don't know, 19 or 20 years old. Maybe even younger. I think this movie released when he was like 20 years old. Yeah, yeah. He was he was a baby. Tiny teenager. Tiny teen Stephen Paul uh, directing Elliot Gould, Susanna York, and Michelle Pfeiffer in Falling in Love Again, which is a period piece that partially takes place in the 1940s. And then I guess it would be like the 1970s New York Bronx uh, and it is about his father, played by Elliot Gould, and also Stuart Paul as a young dad. Uh, <laughs> and it's the story of, uh, I mean, it's it's about how his, his dad, like, he found his dad's memoirs, and this is about how his dad, like, wanted to be someone and be something, and then he fucked it all up, but maybe not. Uh, but it's weird because really the whole film centers on Elliot Gould being a loser piece of shit who fucks hookers. And yeah, I, I don't know. Like if you found your dad's secret diary that said, boy, it sure was cool. Like boning a thousand hookers this past weekend. Can't wait to not be around my wife. 
I don't know if I'd make a movie out of that personally. Like, I, don't, I don't know if you guys have any other thoughts on that. Jake, how much did you love this movie? Oh my God. Um, I couldn't tell you a single thing about this movie. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just such a non-entity. Like, I, I was hoping Gould would at least carry it because, like you said, I love Elliot Gould, you know, from his period in the 70s where, you know, he was with he's starting like all these great Robert Altman films. And then he goes and he does this and it, he's just he's, you know, he's cast at sea without a life raft. There's there's nothing here. There's it's it wants to be like this multi-generational prestige picture that just tells this man's continued story of how he met this woman and fell in love. And we see, you know, this goes back and forth between their older years and the younger years. But just not not a single thing in this sticks at all. It's just, it's so lifeless. And it's, it's really trying to be something. But it's just so DOA filmmaking. I, 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 like, my mind just turned to mush while I was watching it. This was insane. Lifeless is a really good word to use, actually. Um, and, and part of the reason why I've been, I've been kind of like mulling this over in my head. I think Stephen Paul as a director slash writer, he may be my least favorite filmmaker just because like I, I, you, you, some people, I feel like if you, you know, you make a movie that just like looks like shit and is bland and lifeless but it's almost like at some point you have to at least stumble onto something interesting accidentally. But I have never seen something more stale in my entire life than the collective works of Stephen Paul. Uh, there's just, there's, there's like nothing here. And he, he works as kind of a, a cinematic black hole, just sucking all the life out of everything anywhere near him. And that's how you get these movies that have, all these incredible people that are just doing the worst, like least compelling shit. It's just, it is phenomenal. Even Michelle Pfeiffer, who this is super early in her career. This is like one of, if not the first movie she ever did. And just seeing her on screen, she's like this radiant beauty who is doing the most ridiculous fake British accent I have ever heard in my entire life. And somehow the movie makes her uh, just boring and unsympathetic. So great job, Stephen Paul. The, the the lifelessness. I mean, so as you mentioned, Steve, I mean, we're talking about basically about a teenager, apparently a gifted teenager, which is the worst kind, frankly. Uh, not not anything wrong with them, but it, being labeled gifted is is usually not a. It's not a help. It it leads you down weird paths, and this is a weird path because this is basically a 19-year-old or whatever making a movie that is about two things. It is about a nostalgic recollection of 1940s The Bronx and about the failing of a 40-year marriage on around 30 to 40-year marriage. He's 19. He doesn't know anything about either of these things. He couldn't possibly. So he's just cribbing mercilessly from other films, putting it together, thinking what would happen. And he is so clearly obsessed with the concept of the, the correctitude of the film. Because it's a very kind of well-made film in terms of there's no glaring errors. It's not like any of the scenes are edited in a weird way that suggests it was missing coverage or the scenes where the lighting is off or anything. It's all very well-made. It is just utterly lifeless. Like, there's no... Uh, 
there's no artistic inclination or vision here. And I, th- and I think this is the, the path of Stephen Paul's entire career. All the films we'll discuss. Stephen Paul has no cinematic voice whatsoever. I, d- I don't know why he makes films. I don't know what compels him to make them because he has absolutely nothing to offer the medium. Um, in, in a way that, and I guess, uh, leading up against that, he has enough money to sand down the corners that might make someone that utterly uninteresting somewhat interesting you know most people who are like this who are just making movies for themselves that you know it it becomes weird because they hate financial issues and and barriers and they have to they have to basically they have to compensate and they have to improvise Stephen paul doesn't appear to have to do either of those things and the result is just this deadly flat film that is just so heavily indebted to so many other films um but just it, nothing to be done about it. I mean, it's it's Elliot Gould feels defeated in this film. I've never seen a performance like this from him. It looks like he is sitting in the middle of it. Just I don't know what happened to him. I don't know what he was thinking on set. I would love to hear him talk about this movie because he just sounds utterly just derelict about every line delivery and it's not because his marriage is failing it's it's something else just yeah a, a incredibly stupid stupid thing for a teenager to do which makes me question his giftedness because he surely he should have known this is an absolutely ridiculous project for a teenager to take on yeah it, it is it's a preposterous film and and trying to write this sort of thing without anything to inform it uh, it just makes like elliot gould's character is it, he doesn't come across as even slightly sympathetic to the audience like he is just at every turn like a whining child who is a despicable piece of shit to his family the entire time and just going on and on about fucking egg creams and what the world was like when he was 10 or something. And it's like, yeah. shut the fuck up, man. Like this, it's just insufferable. He keeps talking about the, he keeps talking about the Bronx like it's fucking Narnia for, and like for an hour plus of the movie. He's just like, oh, the Bronx, the Bronx. And it's like, Okay, but you're like we all know again that it's a 19 year old making this. He wasn't there. I guess. I guess that's the only like amusement that I got out of it is because the little wrinkles where you can see like oh like a 19 year old who has no concept of like fucking anything at all definitely wrote this part. And there's there's little things like in the beginning where he's just like. You know, it was summer in the Bronx and I was sipping on an egg cream in my favorite soda jerk shop and it was 1942, but we didn't even know the war was going on because we were too busy playing stickball. It's like, did you just read a book about the 1940s and like, oh, so this, this is how people, this is what they did, this is what they talked about. It's fucking ridiculous. Hey, it, it, it is indeed the most ridiculous shit you'll ever see. And it doesn't make sense like timeline wise where it's just like, what What did he like leave the Bronx when he was 18 uh, for reasons that we're not privy to and then just never consider New York City or his family or friends for the, the next 30 years and then venture back and just, just to be shocked by the state that it's fallen into. It's like, where the fuck have you been, man? This place means so much to you. You have fucking family here. What what, what the fuck is this story? <laughs> it's like it's like Narnia. He had, he had to find the secret passage back to New York City. Uh, have we even mentioned the fact that Stephen Paul casts 
Stuart Paul, his brother, in the lead role, and then also cast himself in another significant role. So, you know, it's it's a real family affair. And his sister, of course, shows up as well. She shows up in all of these movies. But, um, again, just the vanity of it, that he's got all these incredible actors, he has these resources available to him, and he just it uses it basically as like a star vehicle for his brother, Stuart Paul, who is, as we discussed in the previous episode, <laughs> not a star, and uh, himself just kind of wandering around, being being very important fellas in the in the Bronx of the 1940s. <laughs> it's it's just, there's no sympathetic angle to this. This is. I mean, I think we've said, like, this is, and I don't say this lightly, I believe Stephen Paul is the worst filmmaker <laughs> I have ever seen. And, it, it, like, just an incredible kind of achievement in rendering cinema completely sterile and flaccid and unengaging. Like, just absolutely incredible that he he makes a fit you know you could describe something boring being like watching paint dry this is like watching primer dry it's not <laughs> we haven't even got to the paint stage and all of his movies are like this like like we said up front don't watch these they're not funny they're not like haha this is funny this is so bad they are just deadening crawls they are death marches <laughs> and and like each one of them is nearly two hours long well two of them are one of them is mercifully a little shorter but it still it sure doesn't feel like it but they're just absolutely just depraved acts of nothingness um and it, coming from the most intellectually sterile artistically barren viewpoint these are literally literally you could hop on like brazzers.com and watch the very first porn video you find on it and you would find more artistic intent in it literally like you couldn't there's nothing below Stephen paul there's literally nothing could be worse than this this is not made to piss anyone off it's not made to make anyone feel anything it's not meant to inform us of anything how could it he's a dumb teenager making shit up it is just a movie that exists because Stephen paul had enough money to make a movie and thought he was pretty important and that's really seems to have like typified his entire career it's it's just awful and it's, you know, if you think about all of these people around the world who struggle to make films and get films funded and, you know, third world filmmakers uh, struggling to kind of like bring their visions to the screen and preserve them. And this fucking piece of shit got made. It really makes you mad. So, yeah, Stephen Paul. I mean, counterpoint. He did make Baby Geniuses in the Mystery of the Crown Jewels in 2013, so I, you know, <laughs> it's it's no it, it's no it's no joke. Like we we watch a lot of things for this show, you know, 151 episodes. This is, uh, and that doesn't even include like you know the spinoff shows. But um, th this is the worst. This is this lineup is the worst thing I I in my opinion. This is the worst we've ever watched for the podcast. This is this is the worst because <laughs> we're just wailing on this one guy. Not, I'm not saying this is going to be the worst episode. It might be just <laughs> by how little fun we had. But th this, these were the worst trio of films I have. Like e even just in my recent memory, just going back to back to back, watching these three horrid films in a row. Like this was maddening. I I could not believe 
the weekend that I had and how I wished it could have been better. <laughs> this is just awful. It's, <laughs> it's funny, actually, because uh, Ackman is a vaccine superfan. Paul LaRode uh, asked me online, because I've been bitching about having to sit through these movies because there's nothing else you can do. Asked, how do they how do they stack up against a fellow Steve auteur, Stephen Grew, who we've done an episode on? And frankly, Stephen Grew is incredible next to this man. Uh, you know, like, like Stephen Grew is a guy who, and we, we've done an episode on him. You could tune in to get more of the details, but long story short, Stephen Grew is a man who just can't stop making movies, but he can't afford to make movies. So instead he makes like two minute YouTube proposals for movies he might make, and he refuses to learn anything about the process of making films to better himself to do this, despite getting to a point where he even got Jack Black to cameo in a movie through various connections. I mean, he's a man who's been handed opportunities and refuses to work towards them because he just wants to be a director. He doesn't want to know what he's doing. And frankly, that's interesting. And Steve Crew, a lot of stuff is torturous to sit through. Some of it's kind of fun. Um, we, we, we've discussed that too. But some of it's absolutely torturous. But it is fundamentally more interesting than Stephen Paul. There's nothing here. There's nothing to hold on to. There's nothing to channel your attention to. Uh, like, it's just, it's like, you just feel like your brain is sliding away from you as you sit into these films. They are, just again i mean we're just going over and over again but like just this incredible just lack of anything like if this is what cinema is it never would have happened the lumiere brothers would have projected on the wall everyone would have left the yeah. cinema not in terror but just an abject boredom and they would have just dumped the whole prospect it never would have happened uh this is the death of cinema no and it's, instead of like you know people running from the uh you know the train being projected <laughs> uh, i think everyone would have just laid down on the train tracks and just <laughs> yeah if it just started up and it was just elliot ghoul talking about egg creams which sounds fucking disgusting by the way if i googled the egg it's 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 like fucking carbonated chocolate milk i'm sure it's fine uh, egg creams are okay they're not bad it's whole milk soda water and then chocolate syrup that's fucking gross yeah for another, yeah, it needs a fucking refill, and he's like fifty years old. It's like fuck you, man. And he chugs one on screen, <laughs> and then he asks for another. I would fucking blow that out my doo doo ass in like three seconds. I mean, I'm not a huge egg cream fan, but also they're not bad. But like, you don't chug <laughs> them. Chugging them is an insane thing to do. Normally, you're given like extra salsa water to like top them up as you go. Um, but anyhow, that's the least of the problems here. <laughs> <laughs> it does have that whole but the whole movie's got that stink and I, I at first I'm like is it taking the piss out of this like stupid bullshit New York attitude like because Susanna York's even like to her kids boy you've never had an authentic Brooklyn egg cream just you wait I'm like what the fuck does that mean it's milk and soda water for fuck's sake only in New York get fucking bent uh, <laughs> I think Gru's an interesting touchstone in that like the the one movie in the, uh, that we covered from Gru where he where Jack Black did participate and he had like this modest funding. It's amazing how flaccid the film immediately became. Unexpected Race uh, remake that that Gru did with some modest backing is is just like an unwatchable, boring, turgid thing. Except when Jack Black shows up, uh, and and that's almost. He gets into that Stephen Paul realm there for a bit. And apparently, this like just this 
sweet spot where people who don't know what the fuck they're doing have too much funding and uh, just pre- uh, they proceed to make the most boring films imaginable. Yeah, this grew's like grew is a lot like um, who's the American movie guy? Mark uh, Borchart. He's grew's like that guy, a guy, you know, middle of nowhere guy can't get funding for anything, but just has the passion to make something. And Paul, on the other hand, they can get all the resources they want and need and they can do everything, you know, by the book. You storyboard it, shot listing, you know, they have competent lighting setups, you know, they've professional actors who actually show up on set. And but they have no business making movies because they're like they're businessmen. This this is, you know, probably goes back to our theory from last episode. This is just more of a money laundering scheme than it is for any sort of like drive to create something something artistically i think that's true of one of them i I don't i don't think you could throw that at stewart i think stewart is it's weird you can almost see this sort of dichotomy with these two brothers in in these episodes when you're looking at what steven steven seems like the kid he was the son who the parents were like ah he's gifted he's a genius let's let's fucking hoist him into hollywood and he'll make great things and be the next great artist and really stewart is the one who has something. He has something to say. There's something interesting about Stuart Paul. I, I feel like you guys owe him an apology. You, you were last week characterizing it as like Stephen was fucking humoring him and, and throwing him crumbs, which may be <laughs> yeah, the reality, but but fuck, they, sh- they should have just backed, uh, they backed the wrong brother this Yeah, month. no, 100%, 100% Stuart Paul's movies are looking tremendous, except Aminon. Aminon is actually as bad as anything Stephen Paul made, but <laughs> yeah. the other two are gems compared to this, and, and are actually honestly genuinely enjoyable, and they're enjoyable again because Stuart Paul at least has some kind of a perspective. He's trying to be Stuart Paul on film, whatever the hell that is. Stephen, you know, Stephen is like the, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. That seems to be his... Into, it's just, you know, it feels like he has a checklist for everything that you need to make a good film and he has good people on set that can make it all reality and, like, make it look like a movie. And that's it. He doesn't give a shit after that. Like, there's nothing in this film um, and in any of these films, pretty much, there is nothing that isn't just a camera pointed at the person who's talking. Like, that's all his film is. It's every... All details pretty much are delivered through dialogue. There is no mise-en-scene or compositional sense to communicate anything. There's no artistry to it. It is just absolutely point-and-shoot film, and then everything is, like, period details and stuff, so everything looks well. But, like, there, there's... You know, it's not a movie. It's It's a terrible terrible play um and it's a badly written play to begin with like it is absolutely beyond me how he's lauded as a teenage playwright because this is garbage like it's it's not well written and then it's a not well made movie uh, i will say the only sequence in this that almost elevated and it's funny because when it was happening i was like oh fucking god i hate this and then it suddenly occurred to me that this is actually different from the rest of the movie is there's a rocky ode in the film where he Stuart paul as character the main character is trying to get the girl but there's another guy who wants the girl and he's a boxer so he has to become a boxer he starts training and it's it's a whole rocky uh, kind of pastiche uh, that culminates in the only sequ- or like the only shot of the film that actually suggests any kind of thought was put into it. And uh, like honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if this was the scene that uh, fueled the entire film production, which is 
as we know, Rocky in his triumphant training sequence marches, runs up the the, the, the big flight of steps and, and gets to the very top and starts dancing and celebrating. Um, Stuart Paul's character does the exact same thing, but the steps are instead a fire escape up the side of a building in, in the wonderful Bronx neighborhood. And he gets to the top and he's celebrating and there's the, the bridge in the back and it's like the almost the composition of like once upon a time in america which i'm pretty sure Stephen paul watched several times and stole several things from um and it's like it's torturous because it's not funny and it's just utterly boring but it's also like that's that's really the only point of the film that makes it look like he actually tried to apply himself to anything it's it's pretty remarkable even the high points of this film are torturous and just kind of remind you of how low everything else in the movie is like there's nothing happening here maybe a good illustration of the effort is that uh the young elliot gould played by Stuart paul is called pompadour but they never <laughs> make the effort to like put him in the makeup chair and give him a fucking proper pompadour he just says like jufro <laughs> no everybody in the movie <laughs> has a, like all the characters like oh this is uh jimmy the con and this is uh sammy two fingers and god <laughs> shut the fuck up man just another example of, of humor in this movie is most of it's about uh young Stuart paul and his three buddies and there's a scene where they're all looking out this this window ogling at a woman and one guy at the end has got binoculars and then he's got him he's it's got it's that classic bit where like the binoculars leashes around his neck and each guy grabs the binoculars and it just it, he gets more and more choked as they're ogling at the sunbathing woman and i i couldn't stop laughing the more he got choked <laughs> And does the sunbathing woman fuck Stuart Paul, who is uh, <laughs> who is uh, at the time supposedly wildly in love with the girl of his dreams, but he's still for some reason fucking the forty-year-old neighbor woman. That's right. Uh, yeah, this, this is all happening. Sex mentor, yeah. good old sex yeah. mentor. Yeah. Totally normal this, stuff here. Uh, it's it's all happening. Yeah, the third act I, I do want to touch on because I want to know. This is another of these films uh, from the Pauls here where I I, I can't really crack the resolution as to how any of it makes sense how, how exactly does ellie Gould win win back Susanna so, York's so let me heart? let me break this down <laughs> for you okay so uh y young elliot gould was a loser okay but but uh he he got into like that mary Kay letourneau like adult lady fucking a child situation that turned him into a phenomenal lover combined with you know, his his love of bran muffins, which he shared with Michelle Pfeiffer. They get married. They're not even bran muffins. They're whole wheat muffins. That sounds even sure. worse. I, okay, so. Yeah. And pickles. <laughs> he loves those two. Only in, only in the Bronx, guys. Only in the Bronx, baby. We got dill. Ah! Uh, so, anyways, over the years, uh, it turns out that even though Elliot Gould wants to be an architect, he's a real shit drawer, which I think is hilarious. And he has apparently spent, what, like 30 years just failing as an architect at being bad at drawing. Fucks a hooker. <laughs> and then he talks, he goes, he goes and he meets his old Bronx neighborhood buddies in a bar. He's like, oh, my wife, me and my wife, we bang all the time. We have a great relationship. Ah, let me tell you about my wife. And then she runs to him and says, let me give you a kiss. And then they kiss. And that's when they fall in love again in that moment because even though she knows that he fucks hookers she's like right, yeah she saw that he was fucking a hooker she's aware of this to her credit i think this is it okay so 
Elliot Gould is the fucking just just goblin to his family the entire time. He's just a <laughs> fucking piece of shit the whole time. So as oh, far yeah. as we know, this is the first time he's ever said anything nice about anyone in his family. So that she's that's how she knows he's turned the corner. See, I, I feel like she had already fallen in love with him again and therefore rushed to the dinner because basically their marriage had seemingly ended when he, he fucked a prostitute in the middle of the decrepit war-torn Bronx. <laughs> uh, and and he came home and was like, fuck you. I My dick's hard for whores and not you because you're my wife and I hate you. And so you're like, all right, well, this is this is going south. <laughs> like, again, this is Stephen Paul writing about his father. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then she, after he goes, he just leaves. He's like, I'm meeting my buddies. Fuck you. Uh, and she's flipping through his book and she's like, Oh, look, he's still drawing. He's doing these architectural drawings. Aren't they good? And and his son comes in and is like, no, those are fucking terrible. <laughs> that part was like, funny. I like that part. <laughs> and, and she's like, yeah, but the important thing is he's still drawing. And I think that that's where she fell back in love with him. I guess it's important. Must must be important. <laughs> Yeah, no, it is confusing because it feels like she falls back in love with him then and then she rushes to the dinner. And then in the dinner, it seems like there's a point where, where Elliot Gould is about it because everyone's talking about how hot his wife is and how lucky he was to get his wife who's really hot and they all wanted to fuck his wife. And that's, you know, that's the, the a standard topic of conversation at the at the dinner table. And it seems like Elliot Gould is about to tell them all that actually his wife sucks and, and he hates her now. And then he doesn't. Instead, as Adam mentions, he just starts lying his ass off and that's and she suddenly she like there's a hesitation she's standing in the distance she's looking at him it's like oh no is he gonna tell all of them that that he's a giant piece of shit who just doesn't love me anymore <laughs> and then, no he's a giant piece of shit who lies to all his friends and she's like that's my boy and she goes back to him and it's happily ever after it's beautiful it's this fake wife guy posturing i mean it's <laughs> it's really weird and i don't understand because she knows that he doesn't actually feel that way and he's just trying to save face. Yeah, it's funny because that scene feels a lot like a 19-year-old trying to convince his friends that actually, like, he's a stud. Like, there's this a strange virginal voice through Elliot Gould's character, which is probably... We know where that came from. Um, yeah, it's... <laughs> oh, Jesus, this whole movie... Like, the, oh, God, everything in this is just mind-numbing. Uh, there's a subplot about gathering scrap metal and they organize the biggest scrap metal hall forever and who could <laughs> care the they don't care about. <laughs> imagine, imagine like, like putting together a scrap metal drive for World War II just to get pussy. Like, that does not seem like a good trade-off. Oh, my... Also, the whole war thing is hilarious to me, too. I, I mean, we should move the fuck out from this movie because Jesus Christ. But there is there's one more thing I want to touch on, and that is the new initiate into their gang of childhood buddies who's like a real nerdlinger. And, and they're like, hey, man, you want to join into our cool group? But you have to get initiated, and then they just rip his pants off. Hell yeah. And the only other time he's in the fucking movie is because Elliot Gould's like, well, the war didn't even touch us out in Brooklyn. And uh, and his wife's like, what are you fucking talking about? Your friend was killed in the war. <laughs> 
And then they just show his picture, like, in the barber shop window yeah. or something, the end. <laughs> we see his body or something? I, I, I don't fucking care, man. <laughs> All I know is it just <laughs> illustrates that Elliot Gould is, is playing the Earth's worst character, which is apparently Stephen Paul's father, and is portrayed as some sort of romantic hero for yeah. God knows why. <laughs> so so here's, here's the bad news for anyone tuning in here, okay? I just want to lay this out. Um, the bad news about this movie is that if you are a Michelle Pfeiffer completist or an Elliot Gould completist or indeed want to see David Caruso's film debut, he shows up in an uncredited role, um, you're going to have to sit through this because they're yeah. all in there. This has a couple of like semi-notable things, uh, but I absolutely do not recommend it. I'd say Michelle Pfeiffer hopefully has no recollection of this film ever happening. Certainly I won't a week from now. <laughs> I thought you were going to transition with that and say the bad news is this is not Stephen Paul's worst nope. In fact, that's the next movie we're going to be talking about. Uh, let me paint a picture for you. Uh, Jerry Lewis, comedic genius. Madeline Kahn, genius. Marty Feldman, genius. Sam Fuller, fucking genius. Merv Griffin, oh my God. Pat Morita? Are you kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? All of these, John Abbott too. John Abbott, don't fucking sleep on John Abbott and and Kirk Vonnegut. Uh, yeah, so all these great uh, comedic uh, minds in cinema, and then you have uh, based on a novel by Kurt Vonnegut, arguably one of the greatest uh, authors of the twentieth century. And so you've got slapstick of another kind, which is an adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's slapstick. By Stephen Paul. It stars all the people I just told you about. And it is uh, like maybe like the worst thing I've ever seen. Like as far as like theatrically released movies go, I I don't think it gets any worse than this. I mean, I'm I'm going to say, actually, I think this is the best of the three. <laughs> and I'm going to say, and I'm also going to say that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. It's the best of the three and it doesn't matter. It's short. <laughs> and it's weird. Whereas some of these other ones are long and not as weird. Uh, but it's just aggravating. Okay. And keep in mind, too, that like Jerry Lewis, his whole career has been like being a guy that like walks in a room and goes, like that's a big part of his shtick, which is fine. And Stephen Paul finds a way to like suck the artistry out of that and make it not funny. And after I watched this, I was actually trying to think of like, was there a moment when I laughed even once or smiled? Is there a joke that I remember? I counted one. And the only thing that stuck out to me was in the very beginning, a guy is talking about, I don't know, like having children and how it sucks or something. And they're like waiting for their children to be delivered. He's very ugly. So he's worried that his children will also be ugly. I mean, I didn't think he was that ugly. It was a, it was an interesting looking character actor sort. Yeah, he's, he's pretty like, I mean, he's he's like a four out of ten, but it's not the worst looking guy I've ever seen. But like a Ron Perlman type. Then he says, oh, I shouldn't have kids. I Somebody needs to have me uh, circumcised. Because he thinks that that means, like, cut your dick off. I don't fucking know. Uh, but that's that's the joke. And I went, ha, ha. And that's it. Yeah, but that might that's usually funnier when it's not followed by the line, 
do you mean do you mean castrated like you know they lampshade the fucking thing it just let it hang out there would be good um, but basically what this is about is uh two twins are born played by madeline Kahn and jerry lewis and they're actually aliens sent to save earth from itself and they have weird psychic powers when they touch but they think that everyone wants them to be dumb so they pretend to be dumb and also the chinese have shrunk themselves down to miniature size and fly around on a fortune cookie spaceship the end right that's it so yeah <laughs> fundamental that that's it and and it's it's filled up with a lot of screeching yeah. and, and in oh, between yeah. is just yeah, enormous no i would think if you were to, to render the soundtrack of this in like a, a wave format it would just be a jagged like just awful cacophony it's it's terrible what what i'm curious about this film is like it's clearly positioned as a satire but i have no clue what it's satirizing or mm. even attempt like i don't know china is a utopia apparently it's a communist utopia where as steve says they all downsize they all shrank themselves i guess to take up less resources or something and they've cut off contact with the rest of the world because they're so brilliant america runs on chicken shit because gas is so rare uh, it costs a million dollars a gallon or something, but they found out that they can run all the cars on chicken shit, which, boy, sounds pretty good now, mm-hmm. um, you know, considering what we're facing, if if that would work. Uh, if you just have th- two chickens in your car and you can run a fucking Jeep, that seems more advanced than the Chinese, honestly, in this movie. <laughs> um, but, but like, there's, I don't know what it's satirizing. Like, Steve says, okay, so the kids think they're supposed to be dumb because they look around at America and America is dumb apparently but like America is mostly just shrieking buffoons that bear no resemblance to anything in this movie so I just don't understand what the target is I don't understand what the point is and I'm pretty sure I've not read the Vonnegut this is not what Vonnegut I have read I, I maybe there's something in there, but I, I don't think Stephen Paul has even the slightest notion of where he was aiming, which, again, he's a gifted person. So, I, I mean, I can tell you very little about the Vonnegut book. I read it, you know, many, sure. many years ago. Uh, but, A, it is, uh, if you look at the Wikipedia for for the film, it is, it, Vonnegut has cited this uh, slapstick as his worst novel. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's always a good thing that we're, we're adapting that. But the the movie, or, sorry, the movie is about nothing. The, the book is about uh, sort of the erosion of community. Uh, it, it is, it's about the, the power inherent in sort of a lifelong support system and, and community and how that's sort of eroding in modern society is specifically America. But that, that seems to be perhaps a theme that appeals to Stephen Paul. Uh, I suppose you could say something similar is vaguely present in, in falling in love again. Uh, it, it's never successfully explored in, in either film, certainly, but, uh, yeah, that uh, that's the the sort of skeleton of, of what slapstick is about uh, on paper, but what it is about in execution in this film is I I have absolutely fucking no idea. Like this is 
there's nothing here. It's just a series of, of shrieks. That's about it. Like, it's just terrible makeup effects, racism, and uh, and squawking. <laughs> there is an enormous amount of racism in this film. It will be noted that Pat Morita, a Japanese-American actor, plays the Chinese uh, ambassador because, fuck it, close enough. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, I you know... It's slapstick of another kind or a different kind. There's no slapstick in this and there's no other comedic form replacing it. You know, if this was literally just like 80 minutes of pratfalls, that would be something. But like it mostly isn't. It's just literally people making stupid noises and shrieking and like sometimes they throw food at each other. But it's like the most base level like literally we we perfected this in like 1903 and then cinema developed beyond it. And Stephen Paul is making a movie that honestly would have looked dated back then, you know, aside from color and sound, which are wasted on him anyway. Um, well, I guess there was like a, a quick shot of a Laurel and Hardy analogs in like the first 10 minutes of the movie. That's that's slapstick, right? Yeah, they show up in the background of the a military base, too. And again, why are they there? Are they is that homage? Is that a reference? Like it. I don't know. What is happening? Um, like, the middle section of this involves Jerry Lewis's baby character getting sent to the military. Uh, this, you know, he's sent to a military base for screwed up kids. Um, and just, it's Sam Fuller. It's fucking Sam Fuller just shouting at him for 30 minutes or so. And I don't know what he's doing there. Um, and, and kind of keeping a tab of like actors who like escape the trap of Stephen Paul. I think Sam Fuller might be one of them because he's just, he's not doing anything outside of the order. He's just shouting and calling everyone stupid. And it seems to fit in with the, with the kind of scheme of the film. How, I don't know why he's in this or what the hell transpired to make that happen. Um, it's still not enough. It's not interesting. Sam Fuller is, this is absolutely the worst film he's ever been associated with. Yeah, and also this film is narrated by uh, one Orson Welles, who's also the off-screen father of the children. Well, at least Orson Welles would be in everything. Yeah, I guess give him a paycheck. That's (laughs) that's the only explanation, but... There's a, there's a sequence where they try to have a dinner party with the twins, and it just turns into this cacophonous night of mayhem where they're all running around and screaming in a conga line. And it ends with Marty Feldman, who's kind of like, I guess, the, the baby's handler, the twins' handler, or he's trying to rehabilitate them or teach them how to be polite or to train them. I don't know what his role is, but it ends with him controlling the situation by spraying them with mace, but it's shot so that he basically sprays the camera lens. It's as if he's spraying mm-hmm. the viewer with mace. And I could not think of a more apt <laughs> metaphor for the experience of watching this film other than that it's straight up assaulting. Mm-hmm. That's what this is. So you wonder like how they got this cast. And I feel like there's more to it than money. I think there is a certain PR behind it. Uh I, I mean, as much as we hated Falling in Love Again, that is his one movie that was not critically savage. At the time, there was a narrative around it, which I'm sure was created by publicists that was just like, oh, look, this is this is the youngest uh, producer ever to make this major film or something like that. So, so I think they cultivated this sort of 
wunderkind uh, narrative around Stephen Paul. And then you ha- you add in a Kurt Vonnegut script. Well, not a script, but, you know, source material. And probably on paper, if you're unfamiliar with what Stephen Paul actually is and are only reading the press clippings and you're going, oh, you got this up and comer and a, and a Vonnegut book. Oh, yeah. Uh, and probably a lot of people saw it as, as a potentially excellent opportunity until uh, it, it became clear that Stephen Paul was an incompetent buffoon and uh, the film was taken away from him in editing. I will have to say, um, the reputation of Sam Fuller is like the no-bullshit guy. Um, this this movie is absolutely the, the one that's going to force everyone to reconsider because he clearly, like everything you say makes sense, but he, he, did, not, he did not see through it. He showed up and he's there and oh man that's it's incredible um again yeah just there're no there're no jokes in the film like the jokes are literally just people melting down on screen constantly like it's literally it's like watching people like you know like those those shitty videos where they like some guy goes into a restaurant with his phone out and just harasses a service worker until they start crying and then post it on the internet cuz they think that makes them look good uh, this is like the precursor to that. This is just a movie of a bunch of people having like anxiety attacks on film. And that's the whole film. But apparently it's very funny. They're just trying to whip up a, a kind of a, a fury. Um, none of it lands. Like I say, Madeline Kahn got the one laugh for me for the film or smile. At least there's one line where she, she delivers this line. It's not, it's not even a joke, but this one, she just mentions a line about how like she feels like life is treating her like a yo-yo and Madeline Kahn being Madeline Kahn. It's, it's funny the way she delivers it. And it's, that's it. That's, you know, I don't even know if Jerry Lewis manages anything in this film. There's so little to do with it it's it's just kind of a a remarkably unfunny film like there's no firstly there's no object to it i mean we don't know what this movie's about we don't know why anything happens in this movie because there's no cogent kind of vision of it satirizing anything and then on top of this there's like just no jokes like there's (laughs) nothing happens in this film it is mercifully like 85 minutes long Uh, the other two films we'll talk about are closer to two hours i think eternity i think is over two hours slightly i think it it absolutely is but uh yeah like i say this this is just such a weird film in terms of the people involved and the the kind of baselessness of everything this is why I say it's the least bad. This was at least the one that I watched that I was kind of like perplexed by rather than just utterly checked out. But uh, again, don't watch this. You don't need to. Um, it's there's There is nothing of value in this film. <laughs> yeah, but this is another one too where you're almost like, I, I was the most excited to watch this. I was like, there's, there could be something here because I think late career Jerry Lewis, it's it's not all good. In fact, a lot of it's you know bad, but it, it's interesting and it's kind of cheap and it's just this like unfiltered Jerry Lewis just kind of fucking flying off the handle, and that's interesting to me. And then uh, the the way that this movie is so loose and and just structureless, I don't know. It, it's kind of in the same cinematic realm as like Freddie Got Fingered, but like without any laughs i guess if you want to talk about like what kind of movie this is it really is just like full 90 miles per hour people screaming shit happening kind of film it's it's, you're trying to reclaim this as anti-comedy it's i mean 
It's it is, but it isn't. It's like it's it's anti comedy, but it doesn't wrap itself back around to be like amusing or endearing or interesting in any way. It's just it's just noise. It's it's screeching. It's it's fucking tires squealing outside of your house. That's not funny. It's just the thing that happens, even if Jerry Lewis is doing it. So again, it's it's almost masterful in the way that it avoids comedy. Um like, yeah, I mean, what are the jokes in this movie? Like, I would say like nine out of ten jokes in this movie are just like, look at that Chinaman. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what? Jesus yeah, it, it really is. And and no, they don't they don't say Chinaman, they say zipperhead is what they like to say in this movie. The the classic Clint Eastwood from uh Gran Torino, that's his fave. <laughs> um like just the vision that the Chinese as a hyper advanced race fly around in a tiny little flying saucer that's shaped like a fortune cookie just I mean exemplifies the fact this film has no insight into the world like that's not funny at all that's literally just I recognize a thing I associate with Chinese people in you know in America and I've not thought anything further about it <laughs> just yeah just an incredibly barren film mm -hmm. again and that's barren i think is just the stephen paul buzzword just absolute just nothingness a, a black hole yeah like I, I and think of all the talented people that are involved in this that's the part i can't get around the way that he like it, you could just put jerry lewis in a room and it just let him do his thing and he's fucking funny so the fact that he's not funny in this is mind-blowing to me all of this is it's completely fucking mind-blowing like it, this would be like if you if you had a bingo card and it had every single number on it, the whole thing. OK, so you've got the it, it's just every single one. So no matter what happens, no matter what ball they pull out a little tumbler, you're going to get to put a, a fucking piece down and you still don't win. Like that's that's the level we're at here. Like how how do you fuck this up so badly? And the answer is you're Stephen Paul. Uh, now, you may be asking yourself after, uh, you know, a kind of a dud debut and then somehow fucking up a complete like slam dunk opportunity. Where does Stephen Paul go from here? You would think, well, he's got to be blacklisted. No, 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 no. Uh, Stephen Paul, he persists to this day. He's a very, very wealthy man. Uh, so while he's not a great filmmaker, he's found the, you know, the, the secret to financial success. He might've been blacklisted as a director. Mm. Well, not until he made eternity, which is the next movie we're yeah. going to talk about. I do want to say though, because Stephen Paul, he's such a successful producer. He's made all this shit and made all this money off of just like artless garbage. Um, if, if you need someone or something to radicalize you, just remember that Stephen Paul has a lot more money than you do. And look what he does. This is what he does with his wealth. See, you theorize that he's made money off of this garbage. I theorize that he's lost money at every turn and is uh, washing it for some illicit criminal organization or burning through Burl Ives uh, leavings. I, I'm, I'm still not <laughs> sure which, but it's one of the two. There's no money being made here. It's one of the two. Something is I, I just I don't understand. The math doesn't add up. I've got I've got money laundering, I've got burl lives, I've got um critically commercial failure films, and and here we are. You but millionaire is the outcome. How do you do it? I don't know. 
uh, eternity. Well, you enter with you enter with millions, and then you leave with millions. That's how people yeah, usually do that's, it. That's that's the best way to do it. That's the, the secret to being rich is to be rich to begin with, and then you just yeah. you can become more rich. Maybe yeah, it's like every time you read one of those articles about how oh this millennial bought a house, and then you get to the meat of the article, it's like yeah, I just got the money from my parents, and you're like oh okay, that's how you did it, <laughs> you piece of shit. This is how this millennial bought a house and paid off his student loans in less than five years. It's like. I lived at my parents' house and they gave me a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> well, fuck. Are you, that's what this is. This is what this reeks of. But anyways, Stephen Paul finally bowed out of directing after creating the 1990 film <laughs> Eternity, uh, which is about I don't know, like a 50 year old John Voight with the greasiest mullet you've ever seen in your entire life, and he keeps flashing back to a previous life where he was like a feudal lord <laughs> and i don't know he wants to bang a, a girl but is but this other guy wants to bang a girl too and then he went I don't, then he goes to court <laughs> I, what the fuck I, I this this one is the one that broke me I, 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 it's, why does he go to court why is the court on TV television court. and he's suing for $2 million damages? Because if it's on TV, then he's not on the hook for the damages. That's how those shows work. It's like, and, and it's weird too, because it's not even like a courtroom. It looks like like the fucking magic future room in Bill and Ted. Like it doesn't, it's not a fucking courtroom. Yeah, no, my, my brain rejected this film. Like it just, it literally was just no more. And this is the last one I watched. Um, It reminded me in... It's kind of like whiplash, kind of like switching of genre, although the genre was uncertain for the first hour and 30 minutes or whatever, and then and then became a courtroom drama. It reminded me a little bit of Nicholas Rogue and like Eureka, which is like a movie that also like just changes genre utterly somewhere in the middle. And Nick Rogue has done that a few times in his career. The difference being that Nick Rogue isn't a fucking dullard. So it's it's changes things significantly. Like you say, this is basically this opens in a. I had no idea what this was about. Um, so when it started, it's like in a, in a medieval world with the most shoddily done uh, matte painting of a castle up on a hill. The castle looks like it's about to slide off the hill any minute. Um, but that's where John Voight and co live in this in this medieval world. And so I was like, okay, it's it's a medieval setting. This at least is something at least they're not going to be talking about the bronx for one thing so that's that could be something and then no it switches to the present day and it's it's apparently about uh reincarnation and how there's things we can learn from the past this isn't a dream it's a real thing and um there's lessons learned in the past that john Voigt has to communicate in the presence uh, that ultimately lead up to John Voight going to court to be the voice of the indigenous American people because uh, someone is mining uranium on on Native American land and making them sick. Uh, that someone, by the way, is Armand Assant, who I would put down as maybe the actor who most fully escapes Stephen Paul's curse um, by basically just shouting in every scene. Brimley's also pretty good, but he just shows up. But Armand Desand actually, like, he just shows up and he just shouts at people for the whole movie, and it's like, you know what? Good enough. Well done, buddy. You don't look terrible in this, because you, at least, you know, you're, he's the only thing putting any energy into this movie whatsoever. John Voight is awful. 
like absolutely <laughs> oh, real appalling. Bad. As much as much as we joke about his his daughter actually Jolie like showing up in bad movies, she could never show up in anything like this. No, this is this is a whole other ball game of absolute nothingness. Um, he's he's like aloof. I don't even know if he's being filmed. Like or like if he knows that he's being filmed. You know what I mean? Like. Just, just keep rolling. It's it's weird. The three probably the three biggest actors he's had in these movies. You got Elliot Gould, you got Jerry Lewis, and you got fucking John Voight, and they're all catastrophic anchors to their respective films. Like, and yeah. again, real worst performances that help ruin an already bad movie. And, and again, like we mentioned, uh, Stuart Paul last week that John Voight was in that in heavy makeup, gobbling candy bars, and just spouting gibberish and it was mm-hmm. effortlessly more compelling than he is ever is in this movie like there's again i know we keep saying like there's just this movie is there's nothing in it it's just a series of shots where people tell you things that are irrelevant to your interests or or anything and then the, the, it just ends but it takes an eternity to end and i think that's that's the only the only lesson um oh, oh what happens it it kind of reminds me of there's there's a movie that came out i think it was probably shortly before this so maybe it was the inspiration for Stephen paul do you guys remember the movie chances are have you ever uh, seen that before no idea is it that it's, I'm uh, not. Uh, no it's 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 a real treat let me tell you um it, it, so it's basically about this guy um and he's he's i don't think he's like married to sybil shepherd and then uh he dies and then he's like reincarnated and then he like falls in love with his like daughter or some shit. It's got this weird incest thing, but it's about like reincarnation and connecting with your past lives and making out with Sybil Shepherd and also incest. Uh, but that's like the closest approximation to what eternity is or is trying to be. Um and and that's also not a great movie. So like you're you're starting from a position of last place, and you're trying to, to I don't know. It's it's fucking terrible. Uh, From the director of Sister Act. Oh yeah. So there's the artistry involved here. Uh, but but yeah, like it's I don't know. It's it's just fucking weird. And and the only thing that I got any amusement out of is the fact that like. John Voight is still alive, obviously, and he's very fucking old. And Eternity came out in, in 1990, which is a long time ago. So you would think, well, this is a younger John Voight. John Voight is like fucking 50 in this movie. I mean, he's over 50. He was born in like the 30s. John Voight is ancient. So he's not a spring chicken in this film. He is a weird, like sinewy, mulleted, greasy, just lifeless fucking pile of shit and the uh <laughs> the woman who plays the female lead is is one of the real housewives of beverly hills now <laughs> and she she's like 25 in this so she's just like half a john Voight's age just like lusting after his fucking sinewy body and just the disgust of that um is is enough to kind of give me a little a little glimmer of interest but other than that, I, I've I've got nothing. Well, it is a movie that very clearly this this role was not written with John Voight in mind. Maybe it was written with with no. Stewart or Stephen Paul in mind. I don't know. But he, he is a terribly miscast, and I mean, I'm sure they put him in the movie because 
He's got name recognition, and obviously Stephen Paul pulls his strings for some God knows why, but that's just reality. Um, They're all friends. Yeah, he's his agent. Uh, Stephen Paul is John Voight's agent, uh, puts him in this movie, I guess. But uh, <laughs> John, I, John, I've got this great project for you. You're going to yeah. love it. <laughs> so picture this. It's like Highlander, but worse. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, it's medieval Europe. There's this gypsy girl. You, she can't get enough of you. She wants your body. Flash forward. It's the 1980s. Also, same girl still wants to fuck you. Are you following me? Then you save the Native Americans. Yeah, but it, it's like they didn't. Uh, again, Stephen Paul. He he wrote this. Uh, and I guess Void also was <laughs> writing credits. So I don't know. You would think that they would have, like, reconceptualized the lead slightly, because none of it feels like it's written for someone of John Voight's age or, or station. Like, it doesn't add up. This this feels like a role that was meant to be played by, like, a 30-year-old, you know. But here we are, just old man John Voight stumbling through fucking God knows what this booby even is. I can't... I, I, I'd say this is easily the best for me personally of the three because, again, Armand Asante. You know, like, you're going to make a shitty movie in fucking 1990, then call that man up because it's like him or like Jeremy Irons or something. You know, you've got a piece of shit script that you just want to make watchable, put one of these people who's just going to like stomp all over the director and fucking scream the entire movie. And uh, yeah, it kind of works. <laughs> This also has this movie does have one of the rare um, events of like Stephen Paul trying to communicate information visually or like like actually use visuals t to create a kind of sequence. Unfortunately, the sequence is pretty much just the lady making out with I don't even remember who she's making out with. I I checked out mostly with Armand Santa. It's Armand Santa. With with her, okay with Armand Santa okay. Um, while pictures of her, like nude glamour <laughs> photos of her, are not projected, because weirdly there's no overlay, like they're not projected, but they're like on the whole wall, just switch behind her. But I don't know they had TVs that size uh, back in uh, whenever this was made, 1990. So I'm not sure what technology they're using, but basically they're making out and these, these shots of her are kind of like cycling through in the background as he makes promises to her. And that's a probably cinematically the high point of Stephen Paul's career. That's probably the most cinematic thing he's ever achieved. And it's utterly derivative and it doesn't make any sense. But the, it's there. So this movie has that, I guess, if that if that's if that sells you on it. Yeah, it's a it's a really, really good sell there. Um other big sells in this movie, um there's a Frankie Valley cameo. Which I think that also fuels the the Burl Ives rumors because why the fuck would they why would the fuck would Frankie Valley do a cameo in this movie unless they know him because he's friends with Burl Ives, right? Stephen Paul's his agent. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> I, no, I don't. Know. The only two clients of Stephen Paul's I can confirm are, are Bob Clark and John Boyd. <laughs> I think my favorite thing, though, in this whole movie is uh, Wilford Brimley's only four years older than John Voight. And in classic Wilford Brimley, he plays like a dawdling old man and John Voight gets to be Mr. Sexy Boy. And it's just so fucking sad. When is Wilford Brimley going to get a love scene? 
When do we get it? I mean, never now, but I mean, is there in the history of cinema, do I ever get to see Wilford Brimley embrace a woman? Let me Google that for you. I'll, I'll be back in a second. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I feel like, look, hologram technology, CG, you know, we brought back Peter Cushing. Yeah. Wilford Brimley sex scenes. We can, we can pop those off now. We can go places even Wilford himself never would have dreamed of. Yeah. I, I w- Okay. So like, what if Coachella 2022, we project a nude Wilford Brimley onto the stage and there's a live sex scene. <laughs> can you imagine Wilford Brimley just showing up in the middle of some person's musical number and just like dropping rhymes with it, you know, just, like diabetes, <laughs> whatever rhymes with that. Only result is this YouTube thing where it says Wilford Brimley talks about his sex life. <laughs> <laughs> with Dick Richards, and I think that's enough internet for me today. <laughs> Jake, go on Mr. Skin and see if Wilford <laughs> Brimley's on Mr. Skin. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that that really illustrates it, though, because, like, Armand Asante is over a decade younger than Voight. Uh, and if we just use, like, the flashback slash previous life slash whatever the fuck it is as, like, a framework... Uh, Armand Asante is his older brother who is in line to to inherit the crown, whereas uh, the young whippersnapper John Voight is is in his shadow and is more of a peacenik. So yeah, he's he's meant to be younger than Armand Asante, I believe, in this film. And and Wilford Brimley is playing his father, uh, not in reality, but in the in the previous life. You know, uh, it gets confusing, but he plays his father, the king. And again, Eileen Davidson's the love interest, who would presumably be his peer, but is like 30 years his junior. It's just, it's so very clear that, uh, and his mother is his neighbor or something, which initially in the film, when he like walks in on her, like working out or whatever, I'm like, is that going to be his love interest? Because that's kind of progressive. Like that seems almost appropriate for, for this version of John Boyd. But it was like, no, she plays his his mother in the previous life was just like a, a horny older woman. Uh, she's a real cougar in this movie, I guess. Although she really isn't in the fucking movies. Also, so, like, you know, here's Stephen Paul has got like terminal rich guy brain too. Uh, clearly has never like lived in an apartment because what the fuck he <laughs> like when when John Voight walks out of his apartment, the door to this woman's apartment is just across, like it's across from him and wide open. And she's just like in her living room working out just with the door wide open. This is why I thought she was a love interest because that didn't read as an apartment to me at all. I thought no. it was just his house. I'm like, oh, this woman is in his house. He's, he's must be his living girlfriend or something. It's like, no, no. this is apparently an apartment. Nope, that's 3B. <laughs> John, John Voight also just has a picture of Abraham Lincoln by his fridge. <laughs> That's just, <laughs> is that is that like clever set decoration to let us know that he's ultimately going to be an honest man? Probably, and that's probably like the register of mm. Stephen Paul. Um, which put the fear of God in you if you ever consider trying to watch these things. I mean, I feel like you could maybe get away with this one. You could just, like, stop watching halfway through, though. Like, once Armand Asante is on, like, that horse, after that, the movie goes downhill entirely. I'm like, okay, well, we got the horse thing going on, and I don't know what the hell's happening. And then Voight just, like, goes in front of a bunch of news reporters who are filming the horse fiasco and, and rambles a bunch of incoherent nonsense 
that is for some reason considered slander, even though I don't even know what the fuck he says. He he just says like he was my brother in a past life and is a warmonger, and that, <laughs> apparently that's two million dollars worth of slander. Uh, in which in which case he's brought before this bizarre kangaroo court in in like a glass television set and uh, found guilty, but. I guess he wins the court of public opinion somehow. He's he's the holy yeah he's like the holy fool. I mean it's kind of like that's void saying is that he's 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 deemed ridiculous and everyone laughs at him. But ultimately, by sacrificing his dignity, by just his sheer earnestness, that that the people eventually come around to his point of view. They start to realize that his his messages bear some some value. Um, I'm not 100% sure, um, largely because, as I say, my brain just flat out fucking rejected this movie. It was like, nope, I'm not remembering any of that. He, John Foyt works in, in TV in this movie. He's like some kind of a TV producer, presenter or something. It's like a Huel Hauser type. <laughs> yeah. So, so like, I, I was wondering if the film had some kind of a, uh, and particularly with the court, because, I mean, like, the, the end court scene is like a Judge Judy type thing, I think, although it doesn't look like it. They have, like, supposedly a real judge. It's, it's unclear. Um, but I was just wondering if, like, the movie has some kind of, like, an invective against television for dumbing down the minds you know and like slapstick of another kind as well as this idea of you know like people Stephen Paul basically seems to me like the kind of guy who believes he's counteracting you know a foolish foolishness in America he's educating he's striving to make good art like he seems (laughs) that deluded frankly and then he would go on to just produce baby geniuses so I guess at some point he just stopped deluding himself even but um, yeah, I, I don't know if it really hangs together. But there's this feeling I think that John Voight is like trying to better the the medium, but the television is is just drags him down. And maybe that's not you know maybe since he works in cinema, he he feels he can take these shots or whatever. But um, yeah, I I don't know nothing nothing gels together here. There's uh, again literally no reason for anything in this film to happen nor is there any reason for any audience to invest like this is this is a film literally made for nobody i think stephen paul he wants you to recognize the power of television jack he wants he wants you to understand that it is a tool that needs to be used responsibly sure but yeah i think he, i don't i feel he he's concerned perhaps it isn't currently being used for that well i i mean i just watched three of his films it is certainly not being used responsibly <laughs> what about his new tv series for 2020 and 2021 friends of shabbat and friends of israel oh, man. that's how well, that's how you john void i can i can only imagine how uh uh, d- enlightened and possibly libelous large chunks <laughs> of that art. Oh man. No, it's it's great. It's it's uh I mean listen to this description. Academy Award winner John Voigt, producer Stephen Paul and pastors Phil and Tammy Hostenpiller take audiences on a journey of delight, discovery and joy as they explore the sacred relationship between ev- uh, evangelicalism and Israel. What a great time. <sighs> what a depressing week this <laughs> <laughs> we should never, we're, we're never going back to uh, Stephen Paul has produced other things he's he's done some TV work I I will never watch another frame of anything to do with Stephen Paul I will reiterate again I, I genuinely think he is the worst filmmaker I have ever encountered 
and and I'm I'm a little bit surprised by having found such a resolute answer, but I think it's Stephen Jack, Paul. Jack, uh, I got some bad news for you, man, because uh, you're about to watch a movie uh, produced and written uh, by Stephen Paul next week. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Stuart. I thought Stuart helmed this one. Well, neither of them helmed this one. This is they both uh, co-wrote it. So uh, I believe this is okay. No, wait, no, no. I'm I'm just talking about like like the pure uncut Stephen Paul. I am off for life. Stuart can. Oh no, we're never going to give you the straight shit. Well, you're drawing a firm line. Jack is drawing a firm line in the sand. He's watched every film that Stephen Paul has ever directed, and he will, by God, never watch another. <laughs> he's not going to watch <laughs> Friends no, of he's, Israel. He's in other. <laughs> sure, he's in other stuff. I'm not watching Friends of Israel. I'm not watching. <laughs> you liar. <laughs> <laughs> stance you um, <laughs> I, Listen, I was just on a conference call with your wife. And she said that you won't stop watching Friends of Israel and she wants us to do an intervention. <laughs> <laughs> Just put it on every morning while I whip up an egg cream. But anyhow, it is it is impressive to me that now if anyone says, what's the worst film, you know, who's the worst guy who ever made movies? And some people think it's Ed Wood. And that's like, it's so insane. Like, Ed Wood is wonderful. Uh, Stephen Paul, literally, if anyone were to defend his career, I would just be... Uh, aghast at even, you know, the only way you could defend this is by never having seen it. To see it, to live through it is to, is to die inside. Yeah, don't, don't watch any of this, but, uh, don't completely cut yourself off from Stephen Paul because he is the man who, uh, wrote and produced Never Too Young to Die. So, just saying, there's, there's some good stuff out there. Uh, all right. Well, you know what? I, I think it's time to put a bullet in Stephen Paul, metaphorically, that is. Mr. Paul, please don't sue us. Uh, also, we don't know what the deal is with you and Burl Ives. No, no, let's uh, let's put a bullet in him. <laughs> Putting the old bullet in the uh, the old metaphorical thing here. Uh, okay. Oh, that yeah. was Jake Tropila's voice, by the way. Yeah. Uh, if we want to put anyone in some sort of future court, yeah. uh, you know, you know who to count. If you want to go to future court <laughs> on, on TV or <laughs> elsewhere. Listen, I it's not Jake's fault, okay? Jake, medieval Jake uh, <laughs> knew that he had to destroy Stephen Paul in the future. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's like he learned yeah. nothing from this film. God, Jake, it's like you didn't even watch Eternity, Jake. Yeah. The, the only only thing I can only thing I can look forward to in my life is that Stephen Paul is older than I am, and therefore I hope he dies before I do. That's all I want. Yeah, it's a it's a good chance. It's a good He's chance. rich. He probably won't. They'll they'll discover something. Yeah. Just keep going, producing movies no one wants to see. Yeah, because he he's a fucking vampire, and he sucked all the blood out of those baby geniuses, and he's been using it in IVs ever since to live longer. That's how rich people stay alive, man. Anyway, speaking of baby blood, Jake, what are you putting over this week? Uh, I'm going to take uh, the opposite approach and put over something good uh, the, from what we watched. Um, everybody go check out uh, Siming Lang's latest film, Days. It's uh, just had a theatrical release here in LA and I watched it uh, last week it's about uh, these two different guys who eventually meet up and uh, it's a really good movie I would uh, just recommend it uh, if, especially if you haven't seen any of his films before uh, still one worth watching it's uh, one of the best I've seen this year so yeah Days is the name of the film better than Stephen Paul's films to our knowledge better than 
most films ever made. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, <sighs> it is very, very good. I will, I will second that. And I would mention that Shy could do literally anything, and he is already just so far ahead of anything Stephen Paul has ever achieved in his entire life. That's fair. Uh, Jack, yep. what are you putting over this week? Um, I'm going to put over a series of movies that are all significantly better than anything Stephen Paul has ever written or directed uh, that go by the fantastic title of Raped by an Angel. <laughs> um, if you are a fan of 90s erotic cinema, but you kind of wish that it was just more utterly unhinged, this is probably a Hong Kong film property you should check out. Um all of them are nuts. There's five of them thus far. I haven't oh, got wow. to part five yet, so I, I need to get into this. But I mean, one of them has like literally uh, like Hannibal Lecter of rapists. Um, that's a thing. They they all centralize around rape, but uh, the everyone <laughs> gets their comeuppance in the end. Yeah, yeah, you know, there, there's no there's no surprises there. Genuinely, often very funny, utterly surprising you won't know what's happening next in any of these movies sometimes when stuff happens you won't know why or when doesn't matter ridiculous films not exactly lost classics but frankly quite a lot of fun so and uh sometimes you'll you'll kind of think like oh i i think i know what this movie's gonna do but no one would do that because that's absolutely so off the scale of political incorrectness no one would do that and they absolutely will do whatever you predict they will do. So yeah, raped by an angel's one through five. Uh, just just give them a go if you got nothing else to do. They're better legitimately than anything Stephen Paul has ever done with his career. So there you go. Oh, uh, maybe that's a, there's our future retrospective series. Uh, <laughs> Myros, what are you putting <laughs> over this week? <laughs> oh, Christ, I uh, you know I, I'm I'm moving and uh, I had to watch these three Stephen Paul movies and not much else. So uh, I'm gonna put over. I've thought about this long and hard. Uh, 1995's Judge Dredd because uh, it, it features an Armada Santa performance that that makes. Uh, what we've just discussed sound downright uh, subtle, you know. It, it, it is maybe the single most scenery-chewing performance uh, ever. It, it's pretty glorious. The movie, not very good, but uh, worth watching just because old Armand is, is doing some work, baby. Mm-hmm. He's good. He's good. I thought you were gonna say. I thought you were gonna put it over because like, I forgot that that was him in the movie for a minute, and I was like, "Oh, he's he's putting it over because it was like on TV while he was like unpacking boxes or something like that." <laughs> but no, that's that's a good reason. Yeah, watch that. That's better. And there's no Stephen Paul involvement. The good news, Adams, if you're moving, is that your memories of watching these films are now in another place, and you're leaving it that's behind. A, that's a valid mm -hmm. point. I mean, I was just gonna put over like the idea of of constants, you know comfort just don't fucking do any of these things that i'm doing right now because it's miserable you know you yeah. might think you want to move but you don't trust me no moving's the worst you you had the most miserable week of your life i bet it's, it's up there. you had to watch three stephen paul movies and you moved that fucking sucks it, it is right up there <laughs> i'd Lord. rather move twice than watch the movies again <laughs> wow that's a, that's a glowing endorsement uh well i'm gonna put over uh, something great from 1982 because uh, I had to watch Slapstick of Another Kind, which is, uh, for my money, the worst thing from 1982. So I'm putting over Donald Fagan's The Nightfly, 
Uh, so you know what? Some of you are still clinging to your Steely Dan summer, but it's it's time for Fagin Fall. All right, make the switch. It's it's good if you like Steely Dan stuff. It's it's you know kind of aligned with that, but maybe a little more like new wavy and weird compared to Steely Dan. Uh, it's got I don't know like Donald Fagan's solo stuff. He he kind of gets into this weird like futuristic concept album nonsense, and it, it just works for me. So. Donald Fagan, The Nightfly, go, go listen to that. It's good. Uh, other than that, uh, that pretty much wraps up the episode. So do us a favor. Uh, there's a description in the podcast that'll lead you to our iTunes page. You can give us a five-star written review, and that'd be very helpful. Uh, helps us with the algorithm and shit. So yeah, fuck the algorithm. Help us out. Do that. Uh, also, there's a link to our Patreon. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's a good way to support us because podcasting costs a lot of money. And uh, it gives you access to a bunch of uh, written content and uh, exclusive podcast content that you cannot get anywhere else. Also, if you become a Patreon subscriber at any level, uh, I will send you a movie in the mail, uh, assuming you live in the continental United States. And it could be a DVD, it could be a Blu-ray, it could be a box set. You, you don't, you have no fucking clue. Anything could be coming to you. I might buy a bunch of Stephen Paul films on VHS specifically to send to you if you, you know, donate to our Patreon. So that's cool. Get a free movie. Why the fuck not? Um, other than that, yeah, if you, if you have any thoughts, questions, death threats, marriage proposals, optimismvaccine at gmail.com or you can tweet at us at optimismvaccine and, uh, yeah, I guess, Jake, last word's yours. I don't want to be around anymore. Mm-hmm.